I left my homily in Whitehall, so I'm gonna have to use my phone. Not used to this. If I don't, then this homily will be at least twice as long. So I don't wanna, I wanna spare you that and still use this text. Uh, like it can be tough for many of us to kind of really enter into the story of Jonah because kind of like the story of Noah or even the story of creation sometimes, uh, it becomes a children's story and we, we kind of feel as though we grow out of it at a certain age. Or we could kind of just ignore it because we don't want to deal with the kind of surreal and kind of hard to believe parts of the story. So we kind of, I think in our minds and our hearts, kind of mythologize the story. And that's a shame because Jonah in particular can teach us so much. And I think in particular about missionary work, how to be a missionary. Or in Jonah's, in Jonah's uh, position sometimes, how not to be a missionary, I guess, uh, is what he teaches us. So, kind of at the beginning of this homily, I want to just review the story of Jonah from beginning to end. And it doesn't take that long, it's only a four-chapter book. So, it should be a decently short review. First, Jonah's kind of an, it's an action-packed story. Uh, the first line of the book is the Lord calling Jonah to go and preach to Nineveh. Uh, and Jonah hates Nineveh, and, and rightly so, because Nineveh is the, it's the capital city of the Assyrian Empire, the empire that kind of ravaged the whole world uh, Israel included. And so he doesn't like Nineveh. And, and because of that, he runs the opposite direction toward Tarshish. Uh, so he buys a, a ticket you know, to get on the boat, head the opposite direction where God's asking him to go. Uh, and then he goes and sleeps on the boat, kind of enters into this deep sleep. Uh, the word for the sleep that he enters into is only used in one other place, and that's when Adam is put into a deep sleep, uh, when the Lord kind of makes Eve out of him. So he's in kind of almost a, a comatose state. And so when this storm kicks up, he doesn't notice it. And uh, all the sailors are terrified. So they go down and they wake Jonah up and say, pray to your God. We're praying to all our gods and they're not doing anything about this. So maybe your God will do something about this storm. Pray to him. And uh, so then the next step is they cast lots. Kind of in the ancient world, casting lots is a very common practice. Actually, Matthias was chosen to take Judas' place as the new 12th apostle through casting of lots. So it was a common thing. They kind of thought that the Lord guided the casting of lots. And of course, Jonah is chosen in the casting of lots. So they ask him, what did you do to, for, that this storm came upon us? And he admitted that he was running away from God uh, and his call. And so then they're terrified because now they're kind of aiding in a prophet on the run they're kind of accomplices in his crime of running away from God. And, uh, and so he says, just toss me over the side of the boat. It'll be okay. The storm will stop. But they're good guys, so they don't want to do that right away. So they keep rowing and keep rowing, and they just can't fight the storm. And so finally, they apologize to God and then throw Joan over the side of the boat. And immediately, the, the storm ceases. And so they're all amazed, and they kind of come to conversion and make vows to God. And Jonah finally thinks that he has escaped because he's going to die in the ocean. Uh, so he doesn't have to preach to Nineveh. But then the giant fish eats him. And so the, this is kind of this part of the story where I think you lose a lot of moderns. You know, it's just really Jonah in the belly of the whale. But if you think about it, uh, in, in the context, compared to like the healing of the blind and the sick and, he, you know, the curing of those who are deaf from birth, uh, or even just the Eucharist that we have, curing of lepers, raising from the dead, 
you know, surviving in the belly of a whale for three days just isn't that miraculous can, compared to many other things. So I think it's very, it's very believable that the Lord could do this if he wanted to. It just seems kind of fantastic, and that's why it's hard to believe. Um, but there's nothing to suggest in this story that this is a spiritual allegory. There is a lot of spiritual truths we can gain from this, like really Jonah needed to go into the deep darkness of, of the whale's belly to, to kind of come to terms with what he's called to. Um, and he was in a spiritual darkness from running from the Lord. But uh, to, to, to just write it off as, as ridiculous, I think is, is foolish. It's very believable that he could have just spent some time in the belly of the whale. So finally, uh, and obviously it worked, he's finally vomited up on shore and, and uh, the Lord comes and tells him again, you've got to go preach to Nineveh. And he finally says, okay. So he agrees to it. And he heads to the city, the capital of this horrible empire. And it's a big city, 120,000 in the ancient world's huge. So it takes a couple of days to walk through and really give everyone the, the message of repentance. But within the first day, they actually believe him. And he's not expecting it. I don't think they're expecting it. But uh, they believe him and they repent and you know, put on sackcloth and ashes. And, and sackcloth would be like throwing a burlap sack over yourself and then putting ashes on your head. That's kind of the visual form of mourning and repentance in the ancient world. And even the animals, even, they even put sackcloth and ashes on the animals and make them fast. Um, so even the animals are fasting in repentance, uh, which I think is a great scene to think about cows with ashes on their head and a burlap sack over them. But uh, the king proclaims, he says, who knows, God may repent and turn his fierce anger uh, so that we may not perish. And the Lord does spare the city from destruction. So, happy ending to Jonah, huh? No, actually, because Jonah didn't want this. And so that's what's so interesting about the end of the book. uh, That Jonah, first of all, wasn't expecting the people to repent. And then even when they did repent... Uh, he, he still thought the Lord would destroy him. So he kind of, after, after they proclaim this fast, he, he kind of climbs up on a cliff and finds a good spot to watch, you know, the fire and brimstone rain down on Nineveh uh, because they're the head of this horrible empire. So why would their repentance mean anything to the Lord? So God gives him a, a just plant that grows up and gives him shade. They're in the desert. It's kind of hot. And, uh, and he's happy. He's, he's got a good, good spot. And then... The next night, you know, the worm kills the plant and it dies. And then he's angry again. He says, you know, Lord, you're not going to destroy Nineveh. And you killed the plant that was giving me shade. Why don't you just kill me too? And, uh, and the last line of this book is, the Lord tells Noah, Should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who know not their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? Uh, and that's the end of the book of Jonah. So he's just, we're just left hanging. What happens to Jonah? We don't know. Uh, and, and he's left in this state of like total anger with God. And, and, and his heart just wasn't even in any of his preaching. So it's a fascinating one to reflect on. Jonah's not exactly the, God, like the, the prophet that we would want to model our lives on. You know, it's, he's not the, the perfect vision of a missionary. But I think we can relate to Jonah in a lot of ways that we're uncomfortable with. Uh, so, I'll, I'll give it an example in my own life, how I can relate to Jonah. When I went to Carroll College, I, uh, as a sophomore, I was hired on as a, a peer minister and put on a floor with 50 freshman guys and told that I was in charge of ministry for this floor. 
So I'm one year older than these guys, not exactly like in a position of respect, and I've been a Catholic for two years, I don't really know what I'm doing, and, uh, and all I know is, I guess, I'm supposed to talk to these guys about Jesus. So very quickly, I kind of got a feel for who was interested in what I, was, what I wanted to say, and then a feel for who was not interested in what I wanted to say. And being an insecure 20-year-old, I just said, I kind of wrote off the guys who weren't interested initially as kind of a lost cause, you know. Those are probably the guys I'm never going to get to. But I couldn't completely give up, so I, I would still invite, you know. Whenever there's an event, I'd, I'd stick my head in the door and be like, hey guys, you want to go to this event? Oh, you don't? No, it's cool. All right, see you later. And, uh, <laughs> and so, like, it was kind of very half-hearted. I, didn't, I, didn't, I just didn't want to be in that awkward position of, of like, really confronting them, you know. So, uh, but more, more than once, uh, I'd say enough times to, to really confuse me, I would, after, you know, 20 invites just getting totally shut down, I would pop my head in the door and be like, hey, you want to go to this event? And, and some guy would just, like, drop the controller to his video games and be like, yeah, I do. And I'd be a little surprised, and I think he was even a little surprised. But, uh, but then he would go, and somehow the Lord would work in a, a really powerful way through whatever was happening. And uh, soon enough, he would like, just turn his life over to the Lord and, and really embrace the Christian life. And it was kind of confusing to me because I really was, I mean, less than half-hearted in the invite. And I had done nothing to like, really inspire the Christian life in him. And so, like Jonah, basically the Lord had already done all the work ahead of time. He'd already prepared this guy's heart. He was the one who kind of cultivated in secret this desire for something more. And all it took was a half-hearted invite to bring that to life. Uh, And so I think uh, the lesson of Jonah is we just never know the powerful ways in which the Lord's going to work through our through our attempts uh, to be evangelists, to be missionaries. Uh, it's, it's always the Lord who prepares the hearts of those who, to whom we preach. And I know it's always kind of tough to bring God into conversations where it's not natural uh, to question people, uh, to really send out invites, and it's, and it's often awkward. But it's not our jobs as Christians to make everyone feel comfortable all the time. And it's definitely not our mission to be comfortable uh, the call to the Christian life is just not a comfortable call. Uh, it's the call to, the, to greatness, to the, to the joy of the gospel, uh, which is some, something so much greater than uh, worldly comforts. And Bishop Robert Barron is always, he's kind of relentless in his, uh, in his kind of reminder to the church that to be a Christian is to be a missionary, period. Those two things are the same. It's not like certain Christians are missionaries and certain Christians aren't. It's all of our calls. Uh, Think about those who called you to live the gospel in a real way. Uh, They were never coercive. At least those who called me were never coercive. But they were always bold. And I never, uh, for a long time, never really responded with any sort of enthusiasm. But they just didn't care. Uh, and, And they were willing to kind of push into that awkwardness in order to preach. St. John Paul II uh, made very clear, he said, that the church imposes nothing, she only proposes. Uh, and that is the truth, that we never impose the faith on others, we always propose. But that, that's only the first half of this great quote, and that's the, one, the part that always gets quoted by everyone, um, in order to kind of remind everyone that religious freedom is a thing. 
Uh, but there's a second half to that quote, and I think it's beautiful, so I'll say the whole thing. The church imposes nothing. She only proposes. What she proposes, however, is the truth, and the truth does impose itself. So that's kind of the trick. And what the, what the Pope is reminding us there is that we don't need to worry about how dynamic we are as missionaries or as evangelists, that what we're preaching is the truth. So even if we do it poorly, even if we do it half-heartedly, if someone really hears it, and if the Lord prepares their heart to hear it, then they will embrace it. Um, so we don't have to have all the answers before we jump into the fray, uh, before we really get out there and start to be evangelists. Because the Lord, he is the way, the truth, and the life, and he makes up for what is lacking in us. Uh, and it's always been kind of the paradox of the Christian life that it's kind of precisely in being a missionary that we become missionaries. So it's in the missionary work that we become kind of fearless missionaries. We look at the, the kind of the beginnings, the humble beginnings of the apostles that we see in the gospel today, that they were fishermen. They weren't trained scholars. Uh, there was nothing kind of naturally compelling about them. But it was in coming to know the Lord, in really coming to know him, that they became fearless missionaries and that they evangelized the world. And so... Uh, Jonah, in, in so many ways, kind of gives us hope. Uh, he reminds us of our own insecurities in all of this, uh, in kind of our half-hearted efforts sometimes, but also that the Lord works in the midst of all of our half-hearted efforts. And then the, uh, the, the apostles kind of give us courage in that, that it's the rootedness in the Lord that really matters in our missionary work. Uh, that we, we become fearless not by the tremendous amount of knowledge that we accrue about the faith, but in our rootedness in Jesus. And so we trust, uh, we trust in the Lord in that. We propose the truth and give the rest over to the Lord. Amen.